welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Kate, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, Cancer and the Workplace. And your work is such an essential part of many people's lives, from all of our lives here, and we're going to really focus on um, dealing with work when you have cancer. And so that's both, and actually we're going to, it's a focus both on the person with cancer, and we'll also say some things for the caregiver as well. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. Now, it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 816 participants, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really are from all over the world, and it's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us um, to learn more about this topic. Today's activity um, has been made possible by a number of different uh, corporate sponsors, and I really want to thank them. Um, uh, Celgene, Lilly, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, an educational donation provided by Amgen, and a charitable contribution from Orthoclinical Diagnostics, a Johnson & Johnson company. And I really want to thank them for their collaboration in making today's program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I, I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is the founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, Accreditation Surveyor, American College of Surgeons, Commission on Cancer. And Dr. Fleischman is going to begin by really uh, addressing issues of understanding the meaning of work, talking to your healthcare team about your work, the progress has been made in cancer treatments and side effect management, managing cancer treatments while working, and practical solutions to address workplace challenges and tips for creating a plan to continue working. So I'm with pleasure going to turn this program now over to Dr. Fleischman. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Messner. This is an important topic, and it's something that sometimes gets lost during um, our busyness when we're, we find out we have cancer and are going through the whole uh, process of getting a diagnosis and a second opinion and then treatment. Um, we're talking about work today um, as a global concept. Um, we realize that people both work outside of the home, uh, sometimes for, as a volunteer and sometimes for uh, a salary uh, or get paid per hour. We also believe and we know that people work a lot inside their home, for which they rarely get a salary, but that work is still very much important to them. Um, but a lot of the, um, the problems that people encounter are often outside the home, so we may focus more on that today, but if you have questions and concerns about work inside the home, please bring that up during the question and answer a little bit later. So work is very important to us. Um, what we, who we, sometimes it, it focuses us on who we are, um, what we do, what skills we have, um, many of us spend years preparing for um, our life's work, um, and it becomes a very, very important part of our lives. In fact, those of us who work full-time often find that we're spending more time at work than at home, and our work family sometimes um, gets more of our time and attention than our nuclear family, which is sometimes um, an issue 
when cancer comes along because then we're spending a lot more time with our nuclear family and less time with our work family, and, and even that is an adjustment apart from all the adjustment from illness. Um, some of us, um, when we have children, are, uh, have ambivalent feelings. We sometimes feel very eager to get back to work and very upset that we're missing uh, quality time and milestones with our kids or if we're dealing uh, with care for um, a, a dependent senior. Also the same thing, we feel torn. Some of us are even sandwiched between caring for an, old, uh, an elderly senior and a young child and having to work. Um, in English, we sometimes call that the sandwich generation, and many of us are facing that. But uh, work is very, very important to help us define who we are, um, not necessarily what we do, but who we are as individuals. Um, work is also very practical. Um, where if we draw a salary, work pays our bills, very important. Um, but sometimes even more important during cancer treatment, um, work can supply us with our access to insurance. Now in the United States just recently with access to the uh, plans for the affordable health care, for most of us that's changed. Um, but many of us continue to work and strive to continue to work so we can keep our regular insurance that we've had all along or get insurance if we haven't had it to pay for our treatment. That becomes a bit of a dilemma because sometimes you feel a little too sick to go for, um, to work, but you know that you have to go to take your, to get your insurance because you're sick. Um, it becomes a big problem, and that's something that we have addressed in, in many ways with the availability of disability benefits or um, variations in that, and I think uh, the other speakers will speak a little more about that. Um, we also find uh, patients are quite disappointed in themselves when they are unable to work all the way through treatment, um, kind of like it's a moral failure, um, not because the burdens uh, of treatments are so high, but if they were just a little tougher, a little stronger, a little brighter, uh, they could work all the way through their treatment. And sometimes that is possible, sometimes it's not. Um, we're talking today about some, many of the advances that allow people to, to work all the way through treatment, but it certainly isn't um, a thing that's 100%. Um, and some people just are unable. If you're in the hospital, obviously you can't work unless you're telecommuting only. Um, and may not feel well enough to work at your peak, but you know, not being able to work all the way through treatment is not a moral failure. However, many people will like to take advantage of work as much as possible. Um, when we're feeling well, sometimes we talk a lot about work with our friends and family. Um, sometimes we are told that we talk too much about it. Sometimes we can't talk about it at all if we work in fields where privacy and confidentiality um, is an issue. Um, so talking about work often happens with our coworkers, which again brings us more into the environment of being quite intimate with the people we work with and sometimes at the expense of our own family. Sometimes our families are part of our work. Um, there's an expression about you know, corporate wives and corporate husbands, and we certainly know that um, a good work environment is supported by a good family environment. So most of the time that goes hand in hand. Um, we um, really can go to work a lot more than we used to in the past for a number of reasons during cancer treatment. So much more of cancer treatment is now on an ambulatory basis rather than being in the hospital, admitted to the hospital, to an inpatient unit, being you know, in a bed. Um, lots of the burdens of treatment have been offloaded to ourselves and our families and friends, um, which um, 
allows us to go to work, but also uh, has, we have a bigger burden of trying to get to our tests, to our appointments, to getting radiation five days a week. That becomes um, quite a challenge for some people if they live far away from their treatment. Um, but that also means that we can possibly get to work after that treatment is over, so we're able to work a little bit more. Uh, lots of the high-tech advantages that we hear about in cancer are often a new piece of radiation therapy equipment or um, a new chemotherapy or a new oral drug that targets cancer treatment, and those are wonderful. No question about that. But many of the technical advances, the technological advances, are really in the supportive care area that allow us to go back to work. So better pain management, better management of nausea, um, avoiding uh, and preventing vomiting altogether, um, better control of our blood counts so we don't become so anemic during treatment, better control of our white cell counts so that we, our resistance is up, uh, and we can um, get to work without having an infection or be more subject to infections. Um, all that is really, really helpful to many people and is accounted a good deal uh, apart from the treatment being ambulatory for being able to get back to work. A lot of these high-tech advances really have improved our quality of life, uh, not just the type of treatment we're getting or our survival rates, and that's really important to consider. Um, the, legal, um, the, the legal protections we have, um, uh, uh, Ms. Wolf is going to talk about in a little while, so I, I certainly won't, won't deal with that now. But there are other advantages and other things that have come along that allow us to get back to work and remain at work longer than ever before. So um, we need to be really practical about this and make sure that um, the work environment is really the right environment for you to sustain yourself during treatment. So, for example, someone working in an office uh, without much contact with the public has a different uh, risk of infection than, let's say, a nursery school teacher, um, where there are lots of kids, <laughs> with lots of kids with runny noses. We all know that's just how it is, um, or people coughing. Um, so. Thinking about going back to work means a bit of self-examination and sitting down and figuring out you know, where you work, exactly what the environment is like. Um, are you at risk for being in crowds? Do you, how do you get to work? Are you in a crowded subway or a train or a bus um, where people can sneeze all over you, where you can be more exposed to a basic common cold or the flu? Um, things happen at work, are you touching things a lot, are you able to clean surfaces enough, and that includes like telephones and computer uh, keyboards uh, or equipment that you use, um, is there access to a bathroom, can you take a break? All of these very practical things are the factors that you would consider when trying to figure out if you uh, can go back to work or not. And getting to work is sometimes a stumbling block. The work environment itself is fine, but being um, at risk for um, getting uh, infections on the way to and from work may be an issue. Again, less so with all the new medications we have to sustain our white cell count, but even so, something to consider. So uh, probably one of the things that you can do once your treatment plan is pretty much um, known is to really map out your day, at least in your own mind and maybe on a piece of paper, 
of how you get to work, the kind of work you do, all the things you do, and then sit with someone from your cancer treatment team. It may not be the oncologist, probably not, but maybe one of the um, social workers at your cancer center, maybe the nurse in the office, sometimes in a small or private practice. It's the office manager who handles a lot of these things. <laughs> really depends, uh, but in larger centers, it's often the social worker or the nurse. And to be able to go through your day and see what the places, where the, what the issues are, you know, where it's important uh, for you to take some special precautions like cleaning surfaces, cleaning uh, telephone, uh, telephone receivers, or the kinds of things that may, not, may, may make it harder for you to get back to work. Like if you can't access a bathroom when you need to, or if you can't take a break. Um, some people have the luxury of an, their own little space where they can even take a power nap, um, which can be quite helpful in maintaining um, energy levels. But again, that's really variable over the type of work you do, the work environment, a whole bunch of things, as well as just even the culture of the place that you work. So mapping those things out and going through the possible precautions, as well as going through some of the accommodations that you would need to have, many of which may be built into your workplace already, may be the smartest way to figure out if you can get to work, um, and if you can, what special things you need to do. And if you can't, then um, especially the social worker at your cancer center would be helpful in figuring out if you have any coverage for um, disability, because often your ins medical insurance will continue during your disability and even be able to replace some income. So there are very practical things that you can do by just planning a little bit and communicating this well to your, someone in your treatment team so they can make a good decision with you if you can get back to work or not. I'm going to stop there, um, and we'll have plenty of time for questions later. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really very helpful to everyone, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is, uh, is Deborah Wolf. Deborah Wolf is an attorney. She's senior attorney, Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, NILAC. And uh, Ms. Wolf has spoken on many of our programs, and um, she's going to be addressing understanding your legal protections in the workplace. So she's going to cover the ADA, FMLA, EEOC, and state and local laws, and she'll describe what all those are. And she's also going to discuss disclosure and communication with coworkers and supervisors. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Wolf. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm so happy to participate in this teleconference to discuss legal protections in the workplace. I'm going to give an overview of the laws that protect people while still working and also if they need to take a medical leave. I'll also talk about what to do if you believe you are being discriminated against in the workplace, as well as disclosure in the workplace. Now, my focus will be on the federal laws that apply to all 50 states, but I do urge everyone listening to also become familiar with your state laws, as they often expand on the federal laws and offer more protections. And I'll give some examples as we go forward. I'm going to begin with a law that you may be familiar with, the Americans with Disabilities Act, or as often called the ADA. This is a federal law, so applies to all 50 states, to everyone who works for an employer with 15 or more employees. To be eligible for protection under the ADA, you must have a disability, which is defined as having an impairment as a result of your diagnosis that substantially limits a major life activity. Cancer will be covered if, as a result, 
It limits a major life activity such as walking, working, eating, or sleeping. Now, the ADA was recently amended to give a much broader definition of what is considered a disability and includes illnesses that have gone into remission, such as cancer. With the amended ADA, cancer is a disability generally covered under the law. Now, the ADA has two main benefits. The first benefit is that it requires an employer to make reasonable accommodations when requested by an employee. So basically, an employee can go to human resources or to their boss if there is no HR and say, I have cancer, I can do my job, but I need you to accommodate me in this way. There's no set list of accommodations, and what is reasonable must be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. But the employer must grant the request unless it creates an undue hardship, which is a very tough burden for the employer to establish. Some common, some common accommodations include a later start in the day due to side effects of medication or treatment, a shorter workday, an extra break during the day. I recently assisted a writer set up a schedule that allowed her to work from home three days a week. But it's important to remember that you have to be allowed to do the essential functions of your job, so working from home may not always be an option for everyone. I know Dr. Fleischman mentioned access to a bathroom, and I also helped somebody recently set up an accommodation where their office was moved closer to the bathroom, somebody else, uh, their office was moved to the first floor so that they didn't have to climb stairs. Again, it really is a case-by-case -case basis. An employer can't refuse an accommodation, but they can negotiate and say, well, this might not work, but let's talk about what's going to work for both of us. It has to be what's known as an interactive process. Now, the employee must request the accommodation, and generally the employer is not allowed to ask if an employee is disabled or needs an accommodation. So the burden is on the employee to make the first move. There are a few exceptions. Um, for example, when, employer, when employers can make medical inquiries, including for job necessity, which includes positions that involve public safety or security, such as a train conductor. Now, I always suggest that the accommodation request should be made in writing with a letter of support from your doctor certifying that the accommodation is medically necessary. I also suggest that this be done through human resource or someone with knowledge of employee rights, and I'll talk about that again in a few minutes. Now, second, the ADA prohibits discrimination against an employee because of a disability or a perceived disability. This includes in hiring, firing, demoting, or harassment. Also, if a person is able to do their job and has an accommodation in place or needs some time off for medical leave, an employer can't take action that adversely affects their job, such as termination or demotion. Now, this is one area in which I suggest you check your state laws. For example, in New York, our city and state human rights laws mirror the ADA, but apply to employers with four or more employees. It also requires reasonable accommodations and prohibits discrimination, so it offers protection to a wider number of people. The second law I want to discuss is the Family Medical Leave Act, also known as FMLA. FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees. 
to be covered, you must have worked at your job for 12 months for 1,250 hours in that last year, which comes out to about 30 or so hours per week. And if qualified, a person is entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave. This is unpaid but can be supplemented with sick time or short-term disability if that's a benefit you are offered. Employee benefits such as health insurance must continue, although employees must continue to pay any contribution they make for the premiums of their benefits. Now, FMLA also allows for intermittent leave, which may include a few hours a week for treatment or a doctor visit. So for an example, an employee can request FMLAs every other Thursday afternoon for their treatment and every other Friday to recuperate from their treatment if all your sick time is used up and your job will be protected for up to 12 weeks worth of time. With FMLA protection, you can't be fired and you have a job to return to when your treatment is completed. This is an excellent benefit for somebody who's used all their sick time and are worried about losing their job or being threatened. Now with the ADA, you can only request benefits such as a reasonable accommodation for yourself, but with FMLA, you can request time off to care for yourself or a family member such as a spouse or child. Now if you work for a smaller company, and thereby don't qualify for FMLA, time off can also be requested as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. The request must be reasonable, and there are no clear guidelines, and what is reasonable is going to be determined, as I mentioned before, on a case-by-case -case basis. I also want to briefly discuss disclosure under these laws and as it relates to discrimination. Disclosure is a personal choice and you should have the right to determine who and under what circumstances you want to disclose your health issues. And I always urge caution when disclosing to coworkers and supervisors. My advice generally is only disclose when required. For example, if you need to make a request under the ADA or need time off for FMLA. Oftentimes, coworkers and supervisors are not your friend. They, be they become concerned about how your illness might affect their own job performance, such as a supervisor who needs to make sure you complete a certain project or make a quota if you work in sales. If you must disclose for an accommodation or for FMLA leave, go to Human Resources if you can. They understand these laws that protect you, and many supervisors do not. I also suggest you include a medical letter of support from your doctor that states that you're able to do the essential functions of your job. Now, any medical letter you provide um, to support your requests must remain confidential and goes in a separate file outside of your employee file and people can only access your medical file on a need-to-know basis. So if your supervisor wants to see your personnel file to look at past performance reviews, no medical information should be contained in your employee file. Now, even with these laws, discrimination does exist. Often fellow employees and even supervisors and managers don't understand the laws and what their responsibilities are. I've had many cases where an employee, a 
have told me they've asked their supervisor for an accommodation, and the reply from the supervisor is, oh, we don't do that here. But they're required to do that. They just don't understand what their responsibilities are. If someone is working and believes they're being discriminated against, they should first uh, try and resolve through HR if there is a human resource. Human resource employees are trained in these laws and should understand your rights and try to help you resolve this. If unresolved, you can file a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, which enforces the Americans with Disabilities Act. An EEOC complaint generally must be filed within 180 days, but varies by state law, so I always urge everyone to act quickly. The EEOC will investigate your complaint to determine if it has merit, and may conduct a hearing if they believe there was discrimination. Otherwise, they'll issue a right to sue letter so that you can file a court case. An EEOC complaint and this right to sue letter are required before filing a lawsuit for discrimination under the ADA. If, there, if you believe you are being discriminated against, I also urge you to talk to a lawyer before taking any legal steps so that you fully understand both your rights and responsibilities. I want to end this portion, though, on a positive note by saying that I talk to people every week about their employment questions and concerns, and there are also many employers who are understanding, compassionate, and willing to work with their employer employees. Um, Dr. Fleischman mentioned short-term disability, so I just want to briefly mention if you do need to stop work, check with your employer to see if they offer any short-term disability benefits. There are five states, New York, California, Hawaii, Rhode Island, and New Jersey, as well as Puerto Rico, that require short-term disability. If you work in those states, you have short-term disability benefits. But make sure to look at your description of your benefits or talk to somebody in your employment office about whether or not short-term disability is available to you. I know this is a lot of information, and I encourage everyone listening to take the time to educate yourselves about these laws that do offer protection and seek out resources such as cancer care to have a better understanding of your rights and responsibilities in the workplace. Thanks. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Deborah. That was really excellent and just a wonderful review of some very complex laws that you have a skill of making understandable. And I know there'll be questions during the Q&A for you as well. And our next speaker is Angelique Caba. And um, Angelique is a, an oncology social worker. She's clinical coordinator of young adult services at Cancer Care. And um, uh, Ms. Kama is going to address the, uh, the free psychosocial um, services, support services that Cancer Care offers, and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Kaba. Thank you, Carolyn. So as an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, I'd like to talk a little bit about the emotional and social impact of cancer and the workplace and how cancer care can help. So when you're first diagnosed with cancer, it can be an overwhelming and life-changing experience. And for those that are working, whether it be part-time or full-time at a company or even at home, there's that added realization that it can affect your work life as well. And so talking to a cancer care social worker can help you get the support you need. 
Cancer care staff is with licensed master's level oncology social workers, and all of our services are completely free of charge. We're experienced in helping people manage the emotional, physical, as well as financial challenges that arise after a cancer diagnosis, and we can even continue to provide many of those services after the treatment ends. And so one of the most important things to acknowledge about the emotional impact of cancer in the workplace is that in some ways, regardless of the work adjustments or flexibility, it can really feel like a loss, a loss that can manifest itself in many ways, both for the patients as well as their caregivers. And so that's why it's so important to have an outlet to be able to acknowledge how you're feeling and to have someone to talk to who will be supportive as well as understanding. And so this can mean talking one-on-one with a cancer care social worker or joining one of our support groups. And speaking of our support groups, Cancer Care offers face-to-face groups in our local offices in the New York area as well as telephone and online groups. These groups offer a unique opportunity to talk with other people impacted by a cancer diagnosis along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group and get support on how their overall lives have been affected, and this includes their work life. Participating in a support group can really be helpful simply by allowing you to talk with others who are in a similar situation and who truly understand in a way that no one else can. Group members offer encouragement and a real sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. And so lastly, no matter what your work situation is, a cancer diagnosis can also have a significant impact on your finances. And for many of the people I talk to every day, this can be an equally overwhelming aspect of cancer. Cancer care also provides limited financial assistance to help with transportation to treatment, help with home care or child care. And so as you've heard from today's discussion, there's a lot to think about. And while we can't resolve all the problems you're facing every day, a cancer care social worker provides a listening ear and the ability to counsel you as you navigate the cancer experience. Many people living with cancer have found this to be a reassuring and comforting service that can help you feel as though you're not alone. So please feel free to contact us at 1-800-813-4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Angelique. Uh, just a wonderful description of the service of Cancer Care and also how you can use the social work staff here to help you as you um, Consider your issues as you return to work or as you're working in your, with your cancer experience or as a survivor as well. Now, we have lots of time for questions. I want to thank all of our speakers, really, for just being so terrific. And we're going to now um, bring all of our speakers on board. And um, uh, uh, if we could, Stephanie, if you could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, we'll try to take as many questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a question at this time, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. And we have a question from one of our online participants um, in which the, que- the question is, um, 
Are there any instances when an employer may ask an employee about cancer, about their cancer? Um, is, um, Deborah, could you address that question? Sure. Um, under the law that I mentioned, the ADA, they talk about three different levels of disclosure or inquiry. First, when somebody is applying for a job, no medical inquiry is allowed unless we're talking about a job such as a conductor or pilot or it's a matter of public safety. Otherwise, no medical questions are, are allowed. Once somebody is offered a job, that job can actually be a conditional job offer and during this period, an employer is allowed to ask medical questions, and the employee has to give truthful responses. Um, the, the important thing to remember is they can't choose certain people to ask questions, to, to get medical information. It has to be a policy that applies to everybody applying for this particular job. If somebody is able to do the job, then they're protected, and if you disclose that you have cancer, the employer can't renege or revoke the job offer as long as you can do the essential functions of the job. However, if you don't respond truthfully, that would be a basis for revoking the job offer. So I always encourage people, if it is a conditional job offer, to respond truthfully and accurately. While on the job and actually working, medical inquiries can only be based on job necessity. So again, if somebody's working in a position of public safety, there's a little bit more leeway in terms of what the employer can ask. But for a regular day-to-day -day job, uh, office job, um, an employer really doesn't have the right to ask medical questions. If they feel that... Um, your job performance is up to par, an employer can certainly call someone in and say, you know what, we have concerns about your job performance, let's talk about it. And if you want to disclose at that time that you're, you have a cancer diagnosis or you're in treatment, um, then you certainly can. But um, the employer is really prohibited from asking medical questions except in limited circumstances. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and our next question, um, please, Kate. Our next question comes from the line of Cynthia B. Your line is open. Hi. Um, I don't have a question, but I do know Cancer Care and Dr. Messner, and um, we have been working in association with Cancer Care at Friends Indeed for more than 22 years now, and it's an amazing organization. I would like to also inform the listeners, give a little commercial for Friends Indeed to know that it's a place where people can get free emotional and spiritual support around their diagnosis and their treatment Monday nights at 5.30 without worrying about who, what, where, or, or when anything has to be disclosed or paid attention to in any other way. It's a completely anonymous and protected environment in which to share whatever you're going through. So I thank you all for the opportunity to say this, and thank you so much for your online things are so fabulous. They help so many people. Thank you. 
Well, thank you very much. And um, actually, uh, the programs that um, Cynthia mentioned are actually programs that are offered in the New York area. So for people in this part of the area, this is uh, very helpful um, uh, to be aware of that as a resource. Thank you. And our next question? Our next question comes from the line of KOS. Your line is open. Uh, hi. If I have a question for um, Deborah Walsh, I guess. Um, I have used up my FLMA uh, this, I don't know how, to, how do I put it, this year. Um, and if I have to go on on, on leave or something uh, in the future, how would that work or it won't apply to me because I use it all up? That's an excellent question. Thank you. And Deborah? Sure. And as I mentioned, um, for people that don't, have FMLA leave, they can request time off for an accommodation as an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the same is true if you've used up all your FMLA leave. As long as the time that you need off is reasonable, I don't think it's reasonable to say to an employer, my doctor says I can't work for the next 12 months as an accommodation, I want you to hold your, my job open for me. But if it's a limited amount of time, then under the ADA, employers also have to accommodate and give extra time off. So if you work for a company that has human resources or somebody who is responsible for employee benefits, I always suggest you go through this person, that you make your request in writing, and that you also have a letter from your doctor or from someone in your medical team that states specifically the time off that you'll need and gives uh, an estimated return to work date and just make sure that you, you know, use the word reasonable accommodation and that you're requesting this time as that accommodation. Excellent. And uh, can you say a little bit about the decision about when one starts this whole process? It's a really an excellent question as to how you make the choice of taking something under ADA versus FMLA. I could, um, um, can, can you say a bit about that, those choices? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that if you have FMLA protection, which means, again, you, you have to have worked at your job for a year, and you have to have 50 or more employees where you work. And it doesn't have to be in your office. So for example, if you work for a chain like Starbucks, who has a Starbucks on almost every corner, they're, they're going to qualify because there's 50 or more employees within a certain radius. Um, if you have FMLA protection, then it's certainly, you know, I, I would suggest that you use up your FMLA time first. In terms of time off, I don't suggest that you request that as an accommodation unless either you're not covered under FMLA or you've used up all your FMLA time. Excellent. And then in terms of the ADA, like let's say you needed some flex time, you were having chemo in the afternoon on a Friday or something like that, you would do that then as an ADA accommodation? Or could you kind of spell that a little bit more? Exactly. So as I mentioned, the FMLA requires uh, intermittent leave every other Friday, every other 
whatever your need may be for treatment, for follow-up visits, and you can also request that as an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So again, it would be, I would suggest it be done in writing with a letter from your doctor that says, I am the treating doctor for Jane Doe. She's able to do the essential functions of her job. However, as a result of her cancer diagnosis, it's medically necessary that she attend a medical appointment every other Thursday afternoon or come in for chemotherapy every other Thursday afternoon and will require this time off as an accommodation. Excellent. We have another really excellent question from one of our online participants. How do I approach my absence for the workforce due to cancer treatments in my resume and job interviews? So I'm going to ask Deborah to start off. I'm going to ask everyone to weigh in on that one because it's a frequently asked question. And um, so, uh, Deborah, if you want to start with that, it really has to do with what do you do with your resume and, and job interviews. Right. And it's a very common question, and it's, it's a tough question to answer. Um, I will say now with the job market the way it's been over the past few years, a lot of people have gaps in their resumes, so it's not as uncommon now. Um, what I usually suggest to someone is to think of how they can discuss this time with a potential employer. They don't necessarily have to say, I had time off because I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, talk about using the time to, um, to educate yourself or um, to take time off to, I mean, you don't want to, to represent anything that's not accurate, but I always say think of other things that you were doing at this time and stress those. And then the other is, of course, to try and deflect any of those questions. And when somebody's asked a question about a gap in their resume, to turn the question around and talk about all the positive things that they have to offer for this job tough questions to answer. Um, and I've talked to people who have had interviews and disclosed their cancer diagnosis and have gotten the job. So I don't want to say that that never happens, but in this job market when employers are faced with a lot of potential employees, that you know, may be one factor that they do look at in terms of thinking, well, is this somebody that is going to be able to work? Is it someone that I can rely on? Um, so again, I, I generally suggest not disclosing and thinking of other positive aspects of, of um, what you could offer to this job to, to focus on. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add, add anything? Um, do you? Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything that was said. It, it uh, sometimes is a hard choice because you don't want to lie. Uh, you don't want to misrepresent, but on the other hand, um, you don't want to say something that will make your skills less usable and less employable. So it, it's a really tough call. So definitely this is a good thing to rehearse and, and definitely think through very carefully before a job interview. Yeah. And Angelique, do you want to add anything as well? Absolutely. I think it's a question that we hear quite often in terms of how to how to address that gap, and, and I agree with, um, you know, what everybody said. Another thing um, 
that that can be really helpful and it can be done you know with one of cancer care's um, oncology social workers or a hospital social worker or even friend or family but just kind of rehearsing you know that interview um, I believe someone just said about um, really really kind of practicing or role-playing how to address those you know how to address those um, those questions or concerns and so once you know once you kind of figure out how best for yourself to answer those questions, practicing it with someone can also be helpful. It could feel, you know, less less of a daunting question to, to answer when you've kind of already thought about how you're going to answer it and practice that. So that's something that can um, be really a real useful tool to, to be able to do with a friend, family, or, or social worker. And Angelique, that's such an important point that the concept of really, you know, practicing, you know, for a job interview, which people often do in general anyway, they try to anticipate questions and you're anticipating some other questions that maybe um that, you know, are, are, are things that you really want to think through. Also, sometimes um, are in a support group of environment, people can raise that issue, and perhaps you can speak to that, Angelique, as well, and, and people can kind of share tips of what they've done um, in handling that um, as it comes up. So, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so, yeah, so as I was saying before, social um, support groups are a really wonderful way to kind of connect with other people who can really relate to your particular experience and, and kind of, you know, joining a community of other people that can really relate to what you're going through, um, not just from an emotional aspect, but also a very practical aspect as well, practical concerns and questions that can come up, not just with regards to the diagnosis and medical information, but also, you know, questions about the workplace concerns can come up um, in support groups regarding, you know, how to disclose, should I disclose, I'm, I'm feeling a certain way and don't know really how to, to get through it, um, you know, during work. And so a support group is a real nice way to kind of feel that inclusion and hear, you know, other people kind of troubleshoot around the same around the same or similar um, questions and then having that guidance of the oncology social worker as, as well to kind of facilitate um, um, that support can be really helpful. And so, so yeah, so absolutely um, the support groups can also be an extremely helpful way in, in not only addressing the emotional stuff but also the practical issues as well like with cancer in the workplace. Well, thank you. And we have another question from one of our online participants from Kathy. Um, my supervisor often asks me how I'm doing with my treatments. She's concerned about me and has never denied me an accommodation. I get the impression from this discussion today that maybe I shouldn't be answering these questions. Is that correct? Um, Deborah, do you want to address that first? And, we'll see what everyone, and perhaps we'll have everyone weigh in on that. But. Sure. It's really on a case-by-case -case basis, and as I said, I talk to people all the time who have employers who are supportive and accommodating, and if that's your circumstance, then by all means do what you're comfortable with, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's just that I think you have to understand that not everybody that you work with may be supportive, not everybody that you work with understands that you have certain rights um, in the workplace. But again, it's on a case-by-case -case basis, and I, as I said, I speak to people quite often in similar circumstances who have supervisors, managers that are genuinely concerned about them and very accommodating. Excellent. And um, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. 
I, I agree. Uh, and I've also been so impressed over the years um, where um, small businesses, small companies, um, and even larger companies will really rise to the occasion. Um, I don't have any study to back this up, but my own impression is that if someone high up in the organization um, has had cancer themselves, or has a relative with cancer themselves, they suddenly get it. <laughs> and they get it in a very personal way, and often that translates into true, genuine uh, support for employees. So it, it really is on a case-by-case -case basis. It's not all bad. It can be quite good. It's just uh, it varies from place to place. And Angelique, too. Sure, I absolutely agree that I think it depends, um, that it varies from a case to uh, case by case basis and really also depends on a you know many different variables um, one of the one of the the key things that comes to mind is is also to what extent do you feel comfortable um, sharing and answering that question you know those questions can be answered with a, a very you know, um, one sentence kind of blanket response, or it can be answered in a more detailed um, response. You know, the way in which you would communicate with your with your supervisor is going to be very different than the way in which you're going to communicate with a friend or family member. And so that can be another um, useful thing in, in thinking about how you want to answer that question is what do you feel comfortable um, saying in response to that question. It doesn't have to be full of details. It can be um, the answer to that, um, to the question when your supervisor asks you, can be what you want it to be. And that's such an important point, Angelique, because indeed um, that it's your choice as to how you can, you can still answer questions as you're comfortable answering them, but you can either answer them briefly um, and um, um, you know, you might want to also, um, for those of you on the call, just decide how much time during the day uh, people are asking you things and it's taking up your time from being able to do what you're there to do, what you want to do. So it is very much, as everyone has said, a, a rather personal decision, but you, there are things you can think through and about that. And if you have questions like this, definitely, you know, talk to a professional person, um, either someone in your community or to call cancer care, a staff, to really walk, you know, to help us walk you through um, so this all works the best for you. Um, it's kind of often for many people, it's a new terrain, and so it's, um, and uh, it sounds like you have a, a very, Kathy's worked out a very good arrangement with your, with the person, with your supervisor, but I think um, it's, it's always good to think about these things in terms of just um, the extent to which you need to share. That's, that's really important to be aware of that. Um, if I could just add one more thing, Carolyn. The EEOC um, has an excellent website. They have so much information available for employees in terms of what your rights are, what the laws are. They have a helpline, so it's also very useful if you feel that you have specific questions about what's happening in the employment. Take a look at their website. It's, it's very helpful. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another question um, from actually from one of our participants, um, one of our online participants. Um, on paper, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Family Medical Leave Act um, protect me in the workplace, but given the competitive atmosphere in my office, I feel there are more subtle ways I was penalized for leaving work for a period of time due to my cancer treatments. It continues to this day, even though my leave of absence was months ago. What can I do to help my career in this situation? Deborah, do you want to address that first? And sure. Let me start by saying that, I mean, both laws prohibit somebody from being penalized. 
and I always urge people, if they feel that there was any adverse action taken as a result of, of using these laws to, to help them through a period, to talk to human resources if there is a human resource because, again, that's what they're trained to do. They understand what your rights are. Um, otherwise, perhaps talk to a manager, talk to a supervisor, and you know, find out what you can do to um, whether it's catch up because you've missed something, um, you know, whatever the case may be. Talk to talk to somebody in the workplace. But again, nobody should be penalized because of these laws. And if you feel you are, then um, talk to HR or even, as I mentioned before, talk to an attorney about what your rights are. Excellent. And if you have uh, questions or concerns about accessing an attorney in, in terms of there are many, um, you know, Deborah Wolf is part of a pro bono law firm, actually, excellent lawyers there who work in the in the, uh, the nonprofit environment providing their services at no cost. And there are many of them springing up throughout the country. And so um, now that is very special. There are a few others throughout the country, and we're happy to connect you um, to that information as well. Um, does anyone else if I want to just add to that? There actually is a National Cancer Legal Services Network as well. So if you do a search for, you know, the National Cancer Legal Service, it has um, links to people in the various states who do work similar to what I do, um, the free legal work for people with cancer. Excellent. Um, and um, anyone else want to add to that? Okay. I can give the website address. It's nclsn.org, National Cancer Legal Services Network. Excellent. So nclsn.org. nclsn.org. Yes. So N, and we want to repeat it again then. <laughs> N as in Nancy, C, L, S as in Sam, N as in Nancy.org stands for National Cancer Legal Services Network. Excellent. Okay. So we definitely recommend that that would be a nice resource for everyone to um, access. And Angelique, did you want to add anything as well? I think um, another helpful thing too, um, because every you know every state and resources are different. Um, even calling us at our hope line at one eight hundred eight one three. 4673 can be helpful to speak with a social worker and kind of explore what other local resources might also be available. Excellent recommendation. Um, excellent. So really take advantage of that hope line. It's really important. Um, so another question, um, can you provide tips to manage the new normal with cancer while balancing my work-life career? So um, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to address that first? Well, yeah, okay. Um, I Probably what may, would be helpful is to take a clean piece of paper as you're finishing your treatment and about to go back to work and schedule your week and schedule how much of your week you're planning on having at work and how much at non-work activities and then see if you can sort of balance things out if that is possible to whatever extent you can. Some people's work environments are totally inflexible. Um, and there are certain times you have to be there and times you have to travel and that's that. But there may be ways for you to design a better week than you had before your treatment and even before cancer 
um, and, and maybe this is one way to take a fresh start. Think of it kind of like when we were all in junior high school and we got that program <laughs> the first day with all the boxes. Fill in the boxes and see if you can make it better. Okay. And Angelique? Sure. I think um, another thing to also keep in mind is to be gentle with yourself, not just from a physical standpoint, but also an emotional standpoint and that adjustment and that emotional adjustment of, a, of you know, what that new normal is for you. And, and having someone to talk to, like an oncology social worker, or have it be even in a support group and connecting with other people can really add um, add that extra bit of support as well to make that transition um, a lot easier. Could I add to that, Carolyn? Yes, oh, please. Well, you know, and again, as an accommodation, you know, for people that are returning to work, I've worked with a lot of people who, as an accommodation, have requested a gradual increase of hours. So starting with part-time, getting used to that, and then generally increasing hours until until you're comfortable working, you know, whatever schedule you were working, you know, prior to stopping work. So again, think of an accommodation even when you're returning to work and, and then, you know, talk with your medical team about realistically, realistically how much you should be working now and then gradually, you know, ease into um, your regular schedule. Excellent. Well, this has been an extraordinary call. We actually could go on for quite some time. I, um, I know there are more questions in the queue, and um, I have to say um, this, I want to thank our speakers who have been terrific, and I want to thank all of you who have asked questions both online and, um, and also online, uh, online and on the telephone as well. Um, you know, this is, I want to remind all of you this is a one-hour workshop and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. And so I do want to remind you of all the services you can access from Cancer Care that Angelique had reviewed with all of you. You can call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE, our HOPE line, and it is staffed by oncology social workers who are really here to provide oh, such an array of services from someone just to talk to, ask a question, um, someone to seek counseling from, um, to join a support group, an online group or a telephone group, um, to request some help with just practical assistance and financial assistance as well. Um, and also um, we have, of course, many workshops coming up that you have schedules of. And, and of course, we have many publications and booklets that you can access from Cancer Care and Fact Sheets. So we have uh, something hopefully for everybody. And um, if we don't have it, tell us, and we'll try to create it for you. Um, and um, we, I also, um, you know, as we conclude the program, what you all received in your materials an evaluation form, and I would ask you all to complete that evaluation form before the end of the program today. Your comments and suggestions are really helpful to us in both developing other workshop programs, but also in, in developing programs that might be helpful to you from, from all of our, our programs that we offer here at Cancer Care. So tell us what you'd like. It's the beginning of 2014, and we're always eager to hear what you have to say. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, I don't want anyone to think that you're alone. Um, I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support, and um, we are here to help you, and um, we're here with you actually um, for the long haul. So. If you're feeling that like you have a question you didn't get to ask or have some concerns, please call us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE, and our staff are here to help you. I want to thank you all for participating, and I want to wish you all a very fine day.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may disconnect. And have a wonderful day.